This is a season, Advent is a season of us rehearsing the first appearing of Jesus, his coming, where he was revealed to us as Emmanuel, which means God with us. But it's also a reminder that we are to be eagerly expecting and looking for his second appearing, when Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. And over these past four weeks, we have been challenged to awaken from our slumber. We've been challenged to repent from our sin. We've been challenged to prepare for him room in our hearts and in our lives. And today, we will be challenged to receive him as king as well as savior. Advent reminds us that much of what we celebrate in this season has very little resemblance to the first Christmas. We talked about that last week. But then again, we humans are notorious for painting Jesus in our own light. It reminds me of all the various depictions of Jesus that have been painted throughout history. And with the search of Google, you can find many of them today. Like this one, blonde hair Jesus. That's a classic. Some of you may have him hanging in your home. <laughs> then there's blue-eyed Jesus. Boy, look at those blue eyes. I don't... <laughs> All right, no comments. I promised myself I would not make many comments. Then there's black Jesus. And he kind of looks like blonde-haired Jesus in the eyes, but he's darker-complected, which, to be honest, is a whole lot more accurate than blonde-haired Jesus. And then there's hipster Jesus... He's so cool looking. And then there's NASCAR Jesus, very popular in the South. I've seen him in Alabama somewhere. Uh, there's Tattoo Jesus. You might find him at Little Five Points. So you also have Political Jesus, no comments, no comments, no comments. What about Jesus Schwarzenegger? There he is. Man, look at that physique on that guy. And here may be my favorite, shirtless Jesus holding baby Jesus. <laughs> what even is that? <laughs> but we are so silly because we all know what Jesus really looks like. I'm being sarcastic, of course. <laughs> Those of you that follow that, you know what I'm talking about. Our depictions of Jesus oftentimes are more like graven images than they are the real Jesus. The Bible says we're not to have any graven image before God. Um, and they are about as real as our depictions of his birth so oftentimes. And it shows just how different reality can be from what we're expecting what we expect is one thing. What actually happens can oftentimes be something altogether different. And maybe that's part of the reason why what John describes in John 1 of Jesus is so distinct. Look with me, John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, which is another name for Jesus. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, verse 4 says, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Thank you, Lord. Skip down to verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That's incredible, isn't it? That he being the true light, giving light to everyone, yet the world did not know him, not even the ones that should have. Not even the ones who had been given the promise. Not even the ones who had been told to be looking for his appearing. His own people did not receive him. Incredible, but true. And quite frankly, when you look throughout the history of the Bible, you see examples of this throughout its writing. And it was so much the case in Jesus' own ministry that they did not receive him, that he actually spoke a lot about it. In fact, he spoke this one parable, if you'd like to look with me at Luke chapter 20. This is a very illustrative parable to what I'm talking about. That they did not receive him. Even his own did not receive him. Luke 20 and verse 9. And he began to tell the people his parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out, leased it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? Hmm, I know. I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, all the religious leaders standing around, having come to him and asked by what authority he was saying these things, they're all standing there and they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and he said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. 
For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. Duh. But they feared the people. (laughs) How absolutely perceptive and cowardly of them all at the same time. Of course he's speaking against them. And deep down, they know it is true. They know that he's calling them out. And they know this language because this picture of Israel as a vineyard has been used before. Like in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 5, the whole chapter, the first part is talking about Israel being God's vineyard. It says in Isaiah 5, 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. The whole rest of the chapter in Isaiah 5 is basically God speaking through his prophet against the very leaders of this vineyard. Because they have been wicked in his sight. They have not appealed for justice, but there has been an outcry rise to the Lord. So he speaks judgment. They had been the antithesis as leaders to what they should have been. Like down in verse 20 of Isaiah 5, he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. We oftentimes read this scripture and think of the world. We see so much that's out there outside of those calling themselves believers, those that are in the kingdom, those that are a part of the church. We see this all going out there and we say, surely that's what he's speaking of. They surely call what is good evil. And they call what is evil good. We see it all the time. Turn on the news. Scroll down a social media post. It's all right there. But let me remind you, this is not talking about the world. He is talking to the leaders of God's people. That's a whole lot more serious than the world calling what is good evil and what is evil good. It is serious because God's leaders, his people, are the ones calling what is good evil. And what is evil good? God forbid that we would fall into the same trap. But I promise you, if they were prone towards it, so are we. Now in the temple court, Jesus has gathered this crowd. After his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus is bringing up vineyard language again. These leaders, though a bit dense, begin to realize he's talking about us. He calls them tenants, those left in charge of God's vineyard. Those that were supposed to do what was right in God's eyes, be good stewards over what God had left. But every time God sent back one of his servants, a prophet, to gather some of the fruit of what was rightfully his, they shamefully ignored him. And then beat him. And in some cases cast him out. 
Isaiah experienced it. He probably, in writing those verses, could relate. Jeremiah experienced it. He could certainly relate. And virtually every other Old Testament prophet in the, in the Bible, they experienced it firsthand. The rejection of Israel and the rage of its leaders. And now, this group is up next. And Jesus is standing in front of them in the temple court. And they're standing there. And they're not just looking to silence him or to beat him, they're seeking to kill him. And Jesus puts that into his parable too. And then he says, in so doing, they will actually fulfill another prophecy that's spoken in Psalms that says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The thing you reject will become the foundation of something great. And Jesus adds this stark truth to that fulfillment of prophecy. And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. You know, as bad as these religious leaders were, we have to realize that in some ways, we are no different from them. I know that seems stark and doesn't seem very pleasant on the Sunday before Christmas. We all want to be on the good list, not the naughty list. And yet our tendencies, what we are prone towards, without the power and spirit of God in us, is to do exactly what they did before us. By our very nature, we don't want to receive the son whom God sent. By our very nature, we're not predisposed to God. By our very Adamic sinful nature, we live in darkness and quite frankly, we like living there. Apart from what God does in us, birthing us into a new life in Christ Jesus, we are prone not to walk in the light, but to stumble in the dark. John 3.19 says it this way, and this is the judgment. Here it is. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's our predisposition. That's our proclivity. That is our nature. We are prone to wonder. Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. Any notion that anyone is just sitting around waiting for the light of the gospel to dawn upon them and it will be welcomed into their hearts is just not the case. Apart from what God himself does, that he came when we could not approach him, that he dwelt among us when we could not draw near, that he brought a savior when we were desperate in our sin, that is the only hope that we have for salvation today. Went to preaching. Some of y'all helping me, some of y'all not. You watching that game, aren't you? I know what you're doing. <laughs> Jesus is standing there, and I just love the drama in this moment. These are the ones that John spoke of. He came to his own, and his own people received him not. <laughs> He's looking at them. And he is putting his finger on the very issue of his own people. 
He would stand there before Jerusalem one day and say, with tears coming down his face, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you as a hen would gather her chicks, but you would not have me. He wept because he was their salvation and they were about to kill him. His own received him not. But as he's pointing out to them their multiple opportunities and that the prophets had come again and again and again and now standing right before them was the ultimate prophet, the very son of God, the living one before them. But they consistently stopped their ears with their fingers and they would not listen and their predicament had grown worse. But as we read that, we must realize the same can be true of us. The longer we ignore his coming, his pursuit of us, his lordship over us, the longer we determine that we can do it without him, the worse and the darker our lives become. And even for those of us who have received him, many of us in this place, and that's probably why you're here, would say, I have. I have received him and I am grateful. But in our receiving in him, we need to remind ourselves that we must continually receive him. We must always be receiving him. For we have been saved, but we are being saved. And one day, we will ultimately be saved. And just as we have received him, we must continually, every day, with every breath and every action, receive him again. And it must always be not on our terms, but on his terms. For we can't just welcome him into our lives for who he is. We must receive him for what he is. Jesus not only comes as savior and comforter and healer, he also comes as master and ruler and king. A lot of people are willing to make room for him on their own terms, apply some of his teachings to their behavior, receive some of his help in their trouble, accessorize their lives with some of his sayings and maybe add him to the collection of their beliefs. They're happy to cohabitate with him like you would a roommate as long as he doesn't play his music too loud or eat the food out of the fridge. They're happy to coexist with him as long as he doesn't make any claims of their life or make it difficult for them. They're happy to follow along with him as long as it's beneficial and doesn't require much change. But the moment he calls for them to deny themselves, to pick up their cross, to follow him, to die to themselves and to their interests and to their desires and to their vendettas and to their decisions and to their plans and to their consolations, to their personal control. The moment he requires that of them, well, it's time for him to take a back seat or just leave altogether. But receiving him as he is means receiving him on his terms. And when he comes to save you, he requires to be your Lord. 
And when he comes to heal you, he also comes to be your king. And when he comes to comfort you, he also requires that you pick up your cross and you deny yourself and you follow him. That's the gospel. Now, I realize that all of this is an all or nothing proposition. But so does Jesus. That's what he makes. But we can't forget that in the making of it, that we don't just lose the old dead life that didn't produce for us in the first place, which seems like a good idea, even though people are clinging to it all the time. But we are promised so much in the life that he has given for us. We are promised that we will receive an incredible life that comes only by being born into his family when we do receive him. It's not just laying down our old life where we fall upon the rock and all of our old existence is broken, but where we are gathered up into new life, into a new creation. Look back at John 1 verse 12. You knew this was coming. It didn't stop in verse 11 and I'm so grateful that it didn't. Verse 12 says, but, another one of those but gods, but to all, say the word all. all, to all, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. <laughs> Doesn't that sound good? He gave the right to do away with the old life and to become his kid with the inheritance that he has, with the privileges that come with being a part of his family, the children of God, who are not born of blood or the will of flesh nor of the will of man, but are who are born of God. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. What an amazing reality for those who do receive him. It's not over. There's so much more. There's abundant life that he promises. For those who believe in his name, they are born into God's family. Given the right, given the right to become children of God. That, that word actually right is authority. They are given authority to become the children of God. It's not by human effort or by striving not by flesh or blood. It's the complete and utter doing of God himself. Alistair Begg is a great preacher and he was reading a book by James Boyce who was a great American theologian. And in that book, Boyce left a, gave an illustration of the emperor Napoleon. Napoleon was on a campaign and was seated on his horse and he dropped the reins of the horse to read some papers. And as he did, the horse reared up and almost unseated Napoleon. A young lowly soldier, a corporal, was standing close by and he saw this all unfolding and he quickly sprung into action and he grabbed the bridle of the horse and in just a matter of seconds, he, he brought the horse under control. Napoleon turned to the lowly corporal and he said, thank you, captain. 
And the corporal stood there for a minute thinking what he should say to that new title. And finally he said, a captain of what company, sire? And Napoleon looked at him and said, of my guards. The corporal quickly strode to the headquarters and tore off his corporal stripes And he took his place among the emperor's general staff. And one of the officers was standing by and he looked what was happening. He asked him what he was doing. He said, by whose authority are you doing this? And he simply said, by the authority of the emperor. It wouldn't have mattered if that corporal had called himself a captain. Or if all of his friends referred to him as captain. What made it true was the one who had the authority to make him a captain said it was so. And by whose authority are we called children of God? By his authority. The one who hung on the middle cross, who died for our sins, who rose again that we might have life. It's his authority because all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto him. And when he calls you a child of God, no one can argue. Jesus is the captain of our salvation. And he looks at us and he says, well done, child of God. Is he your captain today? Or are you still living in darkness, stumbling around trying to figure it out? Are you still trying to wonder What is the truth and what's not? I can do this on my own. I don't need help. Are you still unwilling to recognize him? For he came to his own. Are you still unwilling to unwelcome him? Have you fallen on the rock and found your life broken to pieces only to see God form in you new life? The new life of a new creation? Or will you be crushed by that rock one day who over and over again offered you salvation along the way? And maybe, just maybe, you have received him. But the question is, on whose terms? On your own or on his? Is your following him out of convenience or is it out of obedience? Have you painted a picture of Jesus for yourself in your own image, to your own liking, in your own context, for your own comfort, instead of receiving him as he really is, your master and king? I challenge us today, this Sunday in December, as we go into this week where we will look at his birth And challenge each of us to receive him on his terms and not our own. And let us continue receiving him moment by moment every single day. Falling on the rock to break up our old broken lives in order that he might create in us new life with a new identity and true usefulness in his hand. Let all the earth receive him as king. Amen.
My wife is gonna come. She's gonna share a few thoughts. And then we're gonna pray for you and go out rejoicing. Grace prophesied this morning that the stuff we have used to comfort ourselves will no longer work. And that was not a threat. That was a promise. Yes, it was. And I felt myself saying, I want that to be true. Make it turn to ashes in my mouth because nothing short of that is going to save me from myself. Um, I was thrilled to hear the Lord say, it's not going to work. <laughs> to receive is an act of faith the first time and every time. And the opposite of receiving is rebellion. Hmm. It's uncomfortable. And it's true. Receiving requires us to abandon all other defenses, comforts, preferences, perspectives, and positions. Is empty. It is a demonstration of intimacy that does not leave room for anything else. We must be willing to let anything and everything go, surrendered to the will of God. Richard Foster calls this the prayer of relinquishment. A Christ follower must begin with a prayer of self-emptying, to follow in Christ's footsteps when he laid down his deity to become the servant of all. Advent is a picture of the prayer of relinquishment in what happened historically and what God requires of us in our response to him. The prayer of surrender allows God's will to be done regardless of our own will and to continue his transformation of our hearts into his children and into his ambassadors of reconciliation. Yes, amen. If you're not sensing the Father's heart this morning, it may be that you need to relinquish something. If you're not feeling effective as an ambassador of reconciliation, there's probably something that we need to relinquish. So I want to pray for us today. I'm praying that what Gracie said he's promising us will be true in all of our lives. That the things we are using instead of him will no longer work. And that we will willingly pray the prayer of relinquishment and that he will not come and find us rebellious, but find us receiving. Yes. Let's pray together. Father, again, we come so grateful that you speak so clearly. Thank you, Jesus. That your commands always come with promises. And that they're words of life for us. You don't come to take from us anything that we need. You come to give us everything that we need for life and godliness. But if our arms are full, we don't get the full benefit of what you've died to bring. So this morning, Father, I pray that you would turn our own comforts to ash. Yes. That you would overwhelm our 
heart's resistance, yes, Lord. that you would compel us to open our hands and relinquish our preferences, our perspective, our positions. Yes, Lord. All the things that we stand up against the knowledge of you. That's right. And that you would find us receiving hearts. Yes, Lord. That your will would be done in us mm -hmm. as it is in heaven. Yes. Lord, make us receptive. Make us those who are eager to receive from you. Strip from us the things that we have made our consolations, made our comforts, made our focus. And be the center of our lives. Be the Savior and the King. The one who will take our broken pieces and make of it a new life. Lord, forgive us for painting you in our own image. Yes, Lord. Of portraying you the way that we felt comfortable with, the things that we liked, the things that looked like us, felt like us, acted like us. We don't want a Jesus made in our own image. We know that you have made us in your image. So help us submit to you. Help us continually receive you in each moment of each day. And I pray for anyone today who is struggling with these things that pride or anxiety or fear or depression is standing in the way of. Your word says when the enemy comes against us, comes in like a flood, the Lord raises a flag. He raises up a standard and the enemy must flee. I pray for people that are in bondage and captivity, that are, that are despondent, that are in despair and hopeless. I pray that the spirit of God would loose their chains, would break their bonds and set them free. Set them free to receive you and all that you have done for them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.